Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. It's one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. And tonight you're listening to episode 96, the very first episode of 2021. And we are covering the top five animated films of the 1980s. Um, pretty big category to start the year, Frank. Um, can you believe that this is our third year, I guess, that we're starting? Even though it's like kind of four years, we started in the middle of the year, kind of so. But third, third official year, like that we've started the podcast here. Uh, no, it's pretty crazy. Um, I think we talked about this maybe last episode or the one before that. Um, our our projects from the people in our group tend to not have that great of a shelf life usually. Right. Uh, if we start them at all, we tend to kind of like fall to the wayside early on. So I guess like not being cynical, but I kind of had the same idea that that might happen here. So seeing it through to, you know, at 100 episodes soon that's um plus you know whatever almost 50 of the quick gauge and right some other stuff that doesn't even count in like the episode mm-hmm. i mean that's yeah. you know 150 individual roughly like recordings of us talking about movies is pretty crazy yeah no it's right. nice that you know building an audience and having people that listen and seem to enjoy it so yeah, yeah. Uh, it's cool yeah no, absolutely. Um, as we get older, as we've gotten older, the group has gotten a bit better. I mean, because we have all of what you've done. Um, Orion has Battletoad Overload. The, you know, right. it just keeps growing and, you know, it keeps producing content there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe it's, I don't know, maturity or something or boredom or whatever it is. But it's it's cool that we're actually, like, getting you know, following through on things now. Yeah, it's nice. But yeah, it's um, it's a pretty good feeling to be this far into it and, you know, still have content that I think we're both excited about talking about yeah. every, every week. You yeah. know, with little exception and Yeah. I mean, we have the we have the whole year planned out, and we've talked about so many things that, like, you know, in terms of episodes or ideas for series that, like, will you know, I mean, I think easily another two years past this and we would still be fine I mean, i'm sure by that point we'd still <laughs> you know there it's kind of endless sure. topic you know yeah you'll be able to revisit topics it's not like you know yeah i mean i don't stop watching movies like i still watch consistently watch movies that i've never seen before um from the past so yeah there'll right. always be the and you know new stuff as well um mm-hmm. there'll always be the whatever the ability to make make new lists and whatnot yeah so this is um this topic specifically is uh kind of like your like well i guess both of ours but um you're just a little tiny bit older than me so it's like really a heyday in terms of animated movies like when you were a child um was this list difficult yeah it was really difficult to pare down five movies um plus with with a genre that's like it mostly I would say geared towards like children. Um, it's never so much like what's the best movie or the most impactful or whatever. I don't know. It's just a lot of ways, like what movies that I just enjoy the most or think were the best. Um, and there was a lot of stuff, honestly, like that could have made the list. I mean, I really thought long and hard about what do I want to put on this list and, you know, what deserves to be talked about and, what would be the most interesting in terms of like having a conversation, you know, 
like the way that we do the podcast. So, um, so yeah, there's a decent amount of stuff that didn't make the list that I think, you know, this is one of those ones like 70s sci-fi or the Westerns or the crime movies where I think we could revisit it at some point and do like right. the next, next five pretty easily. And all those movies would be interesting to talk about. Sure. Um, now what's interesting to me is like, basically it's like you have primarily not that you don't have other countries, but it's like primarily in terms of animated movies, you have two countries that are pumping them out um, during this time period. Um, and your list ends up kind of reflecting that, uh, like, you know, um, in a lot of ways, um, how, how do you, what, what are you, and I haven't asked you about this offline at all, but how, how do you kind of, what's your general feeling about like Japanese, like animation versus like American animation in terms of like your feelings, like of what you like, what your appreciation of them are, are, is it the same, like, you know, or are there certain things you like from one and certain from the other? What, how do just, how do you feel about those in general? I mean, this is still primarily true, but less so today. Um, just mostly because of the influence of Japanese animation. Um, the Japanese have always taken animation more seriously, I think, than American studios, where American studios look at it as like pretty much strictly the purview of um whatever like movies for children or movies that are geared towards children and it was always kind of it's always unique when you see especially like early on like animated movies that are sort of stuff like fritz the cat or i don't know like the lord of the rings movie the mostly like ralph bakshi is the one that um is really like the preeminent like animator from pre like maybe even like mid to late nineties that actually cared about adults in animation in uh in America. But the Japanese from really early on um were making movies that had mature themes and talked about you know more metaphysical or philosophical topics or just more violent. And I, I think a lot of that is that this is just me talking out my ass. I don't know if this is necessarily true. But I think that with like post-World War II in Japan with the occupation by the American soldiers and just in a way of like building their economy back up. And the fact that like, you know, Japan's not that large of a country in order to make, like to tell the stories you want to tell in the way you want to tell them, it's more, like you have a larger palette when you use animation. And if, if people are more open to it where, you know, like they don't look at it as a kiddie thing or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of animation from like the late nineties and early two thousands in the United States that I wouldn't call them adult, but were more geared towards like a teen audience mm -hmm. um, that did not fare well. Like you look at something like treasure planet is a good example um, of a movie that's not necessarily for kids. Um, it's more for, it's like got some more adult themes to it and it's a good movie, um, but not that successful at the box office. Titan A is another one that's a, a good movie but just didn't do that well because of right. an adult audience um there's stuff like heavy metal from the 80s um which i'm not personally a fan of but mostly because i feel like the animation is really um not up to par like the japanese had a very distinct style to their animation i mean you know you pretty much can recognize anime when you see it, like if you know what you're looking at, 
Um, but like, I don't know. I, you know, no one took, no one takes heavy metal seriously. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or it's like kind of a niche, um, whatever thing that people just sort of like, it's an oddity or whatever. Like you don't, we wouldn't think of watching it, um, you know, going to the movies to watch like an animated movie as an adult because it seems like childish. So I don't know, maybe there's an acceptance there in Japan that I don't right. I don't know culturally like why that's more acceptable, but they definitely um put more effort into it and I think appreciate, you know, the magic and the expansiveness of animation. I mean, even today, like I, it's probably less today, but you know, when because ours our group of friends a lot of us were watching anime in like the late nineties, early two thousands, pretty heavily. Right. And it still was a thing where it's not like something you would talk about, you know, because you would be considered like weird or the also the like immediate um ideas that you're watching, like, you know, like hentai, like pornography. Right, right. Um because anytime somebody sees like some animated boobs, it's like, oh well, you know, why are you watching this, you pervert? Like mm-hmm. So, but the Japanese are much less hung up on that stuff. And they're also, their cultural and societal norms are much different than ours. You know, so there's a lot of subject matters that they'll touch upon that we would, you know, and in some cases, rightly so, think of as taboo, like stuff with children and incest and bestiality and whatever, that they're less hung up on the idea of that, like, you know, that stigma or whatever. and not to say that, like, you know, that that's what we should be showing in America, but it just shows that there's a much broader range of people that appreciate watching animated things in, right. in that country. So, yeah. And it's a hugely successful, you know, global um, business, like anime in general. I mean, there's multiple streaming services and most, oh, of, yeah. the, most of the major, like, just regular streaming services pay... To produce like Netflix produces probably like three or four new animated movies a month, and they have new series all the time. And yeah. HBO Max has their own um, animated section with Crunchyroll. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's on HBO Max. Well, yeah, one of the yeah, I think so. One of them. Um, yeah. Prime has a really like expansive anime section. So I don't know. Yeah, and no, it's, still, it's, it's also. Yeah, I mean, it's well, it's extremely popular now. Like, I mean, two generations past us. I mean, it was pop. It's grown in popularity consistently, but it's like two generations past us, and it's like, it's not odd for kids to like no anime series. Like, but, and also because we grew up watching like cartoons mm-hmm. daily, and it was a big part of your weekend. Was you know your Saturday morning cartoon, right. and you had your cartoons that were you know pre-school day and cartoons that were post-school day and i mean a lot of our um a lot of our formative years were spent with you know like having some element of cartoons in them especially with um the toys we played with and like if you you know whatever like we used to always go outside to play and so when you were going outside you had you know your your weapons to play gi joe and you had like swords and stuff where you could play like he-man or um you know there was just so it it was a real big influence and i think that as our generation has gotten older and had children i think that we're less hung up on the idea of of animation not being like a valid whatever 
like thing to show your children. So instead of it just being something where you're throwing your kid in front of it. I mean, I used to watch all the Pixar movies with my son and, you know, I loved Nightmare Before Christmas when I was in high school and it was, you know, fun to show him that movie and stuff like Finding Nemo and The Incredibles and Monsters, Inc. I mean, they have a lot of appeal to an adult audience. And I think that's shown by the fact that they're, you know, those Pixar movies are among some of the highest grossing films and stuff like Shrek, you know, right. was mm-hmm. doing really well at the box office. So okay. I don't know. I think there's just a much broader acceptance of it from Gen X and beyond, um, which has kind of led to that greater cultural acceptance in this country. Right. Or whatever. What do I know? But that's just me. Right. Um, so okay, so what what came close and didn't make the list? It's actually a pretty pretty expansive list. A couple movies from my childhood that I really came close to putting on. uh, Last Unicorn was on the list for a while until I took it off. Um, There's this weird claymation movie called The Adventures of Mark Twain, Uh um, which is basically a movie about Mark Twain coming to terms with his own death and mortality. And kind of going through the stages of like acceptance of that. Um, it's hard to explain. It's a really weird movie. There's a lot of memes on the internet. If you just look up Adventures of Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. Um, Brave Little Toaster, which is something that my brother, that was more like in my brother's childhood, because um, that's like late 80s, but still a really good movie. Um, my favorite Disney movie, Little Mermaid, I thought about putting on the list. Yeah, I was really surprised I didn't make it. You know, to be honest with you, it's just like part of that is what do you say about the Little Mermaid? I mean, there's not really much there because, like, I think everyone has seen the Little Mermaid for the most part. Um, and mostly, my love for that movie is based on the songs in it more than the right. Like, I would actually be more comfortable putting the Little Mermaid on like a best musicals of the '80s list mm-hmm. rather than like best animated movies. Gotcha. Although the animation in Little Mermaid is superb and the story is, I think, really good. Not like a weird, you know, whitewashing of like the Hans Christian Andersen story. But um, then there's a couple of foreign films. Uh, There's a movie called Plague Dogs, which um, you would not be comfortable watching necessarily. Mm -hmm. I think because of your love for for dogs, Mm -hmm. Um, it would make you pretty sad. A couple of other. um, Japanese movies, uh, Nausicaa the, of the Valley of Wind, which is one of the early Studio Ghibli movies, um, as well as uh, Castle in the Sky, which is another great Ghibli movie. Um, and then two things which I really struggled with, and just in the end, they're just not very good movies. It would just be all like 100% nostalgia, which is um, G.I. Joe the movie and the Transformers movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I still love those a lot, but in a purely subjective way like they're not that great unfortunately like the animation is not all that great in them and really like the storyline isn't even stories in them aren't even that good it's just you know it was so crazy like seeing a non-disney movie in a theater when i was a kid that, and those were my two of my favorite toy lines too so right um so yeah all that stuff was at one point i considered it and Kind of vacillated about putting on the list, but um, I'm pretty happy with what we came up with. Yeah. Stuff like, so. so last year when we talked about um, 
post-apocalypse movies you had when the wind blows on there would that have come close to making this if probably not just because to me that movie's more about It's more the atmosphere and the performances of that movie as opposed to the animation. Because uh-huh. um, I, I I look at that as like, that's almost like an art house animation, you know, right. they're attempting there. Um, if we had never talked about it, I probably would have talked about it at length, but I don't, I don't know, maybe I would have put it on the list. That's hard to say. I'm glad I didn't have to make that choice. Gotcha. Uh, what about Black Cauldron? Is that in the eighties? I thought that was late seventies. Yeah, that's eight. That's eighties. Black Cauldron. Is it? Mm-hmm. Um, I love the Black Cauldron. I think it's it's, it's like eighty five, right up there with um, yes. probably the Fox and the Hound and the Sword and the Stone and Little Mermaid. Um, among my favorite Disney movies. Um, I like those ones that are more steeped in a like pure like fables or mythology or whatever and like you know the the earl king or whatever and black cauldrons one of the better disney villains i think um like to me like just as much as good a villain as someone like maleficent who i think is probably the best disney villain overall um in terms of like their anime stuff maleficent and ursula and you know yeah disney's always done a good job with their villains right um, um okay yeah i don't know my biggest like i like I, I i love black cauldron i had a black cauldron adventure game oh, yeah um that was freaking fantastic and like i think it was like 64k or something and it like taxed the hell out of my uh apple 2 plus <laughs> right <laughs> 64K is in 64 kilobytes. Right, right. Was the yes. entirety for, any, for any, if anybody young is listening to this, yeah, right. And that required that required like a high a high def, probably like VGA monitor, right? Play because I doubt that it would have run on like a normal whatever. Yeah, yeah. You're you're gone even older than me there. I think um, in terms of like my beginning of computers, um, slightly. It was a LucasArts game though, and they made some really great games. Oh yeah. Um, their Indiana Jones games are incredible. Like yes. those games, mm-hmm. as well as Loom. I don't know if you ever played Loom, but Loom is um. Nah, I never played that. Maybe my favorite adventure game, like on par with like the first couple Kings Quest games. Yeah. No, I got into it was ninety three. I guess is like when I started like really. I had a Commodore 64 before I got a PC, but um, 93 is when I got a PC, and then I figured out I, I figured I had to start upgrading my my um, video RAM. Um, and I think it was late 93, early 94 that I got four megs of video RAM in my computer so I could play all the up to date games. Um, right. Well, yeah. I mean, right. Um, play like, Space Quest without like Dark a... Dark Dark Forces. We were just talking well, about exactly. Last night, you know? Yeah. yeah. I'd have a boot disc um, that Letso made for me um, when I had it when it was two megs um, in order to play the Dark Forces demo, uh, <laughs> and I couldn't. But at the full game, I couldn't do it, so I had to go to four megs. Two hundred dollars at the time for four megs of RAM. Um, crazy, 
That used to be crazy. You could walk into a store and buy what were they? They looked like like chocolate bars and RAM, basically. And you right. could just open up your computer and stick them in, and then all of a sudden, I know it's crazy. Here's your performance like shooting up. Uh, the last thing I had to ask you about was a uh, non-Disney um, thing that spawned the franchise. is The Land Before Time. I'm not a fan. Um, see, Brave Little Toaster is weird because it's so good, I think. But, like, stuff that that's more my brother's age of animation. Right. Um, Land Before Time, Fern Gully, there's, like, a few of them. And it just wasn't something that necessarily appealed to me strongly so same with like the american tale movies i mean i i guess i like american tale and five goes west they're all dogs go to heaven i mean those are all good movies i appreciate them they just they don't have that nostalgic ring and they also weren't things that as when i was older you know like some of these movies on this list are things that as an adult i found or like a you know late teens early 20s um and so, like, they appealed to me as an adult. And some, a couple of the movies on the list are, while I still found them to be entertaining, like, we're also, like, more from a child's perspective. Um, and those movies, you know, they just kind of hit that middle area where I don't really have anything for them. So, okay. If that makes sense. It does. Yep. All right. So, you ready to get started on this list, then? Yeah, let's do it. Like, 50 minutes into the podcast. <laughs> But right. no, I'm glad I asked that question though about Japanese and American, um, because I thought that was a really interesting answer. So yeah, I'd be interested to like read like any kind of like research or text on it and see if like anybody has. I mean, that's just you know my layman's yeah interpretation sure. of what I think might be. Yeah, no, I, um, if I was a if I was a a good uh, co-host, I I would have already done it. But um, so um. I just before we get started, I just wanted to let everybody know um, you can uh, reach us through Facebook, Instagram, um, or our Gmail, two guys five movies at uh, gmail.com. That's a two and a five in numbers, two guys five movies at gmail.com. Uh, we're always interested in hearing feedback, we're always interested in hearing um, uh, ideas you might have for episodes or things you want to want to, um, you know, want us to do an episode on possibly. Uh, we have one episode at least this year, I think, that was like kind of requested um, already. Um, I'm going to get better about Facebook because um, I never use social media until we started this podcast. So Frank just like told me something that I had no idea about like last week. Um, so I um, there's a couple comments that like I think you've responded to, right, Frank? Because you actually know what the hell you're doing. Um, well, I try to respond to him when I see him. Right. So. Um, so we appreciate that. We would like more of that kind of stuff. Um, uh, in terms of helping us out, like things that you can do to help us out is always, um, one, give us ratings on whatever podcatcher app that you're using, um, uh, or um, more specifically, leave reviews, which really helps us push us up, um, like actually leaving like written reviews um, of some sort really pushes us up um, in terms of the search engines. Um, sharing um, anything that you see on social media for us would also help a lot. Uh, we appreciate everybody that's done that so far. Uh, upcoming in January, just so you know what we're going to be doing next week, we're going to be doing the top five movies of Luis Buñuel. Um, and then uh, the week after that, we're going to be doing 
or two weeks after that, we'll be doing uh, uh, our second ever versus episode where we take two movies and kind of do deep dives on them um, and compare the two because they have similarities. And we'll be doing that on a movie called Starfish and Annihilation. Um, and then at the end of the month, uh, we will be starting our roughly year-long series delving in the 90s horror. And the first episode will be covering the year 1990, and we'll be doing the top five horror movies of 1990, and then so on, 91 in February, so so on and so forth. We did something very similar um, two years ago, uh, where we did uh, B-Horror of the 1980s, and Frank, um, who, uh, you know is very eclectic but has a affinity for horror um covered every single year from 1980 in terms of his top five b horror movies of each year um and we're going to be kind of repeating that to some degree um with the 90s this year um and then uh next month um we have a few episodes planned but um the one that we'll really be focusing on is our 100th episode um where we will Great. be um having uh, everybody that's been on the podcast with us at some point, come back. Uh, we've given the opportunity to talk about a movie that they either really want to talk about um, for whatever reason or another. Um, yeah. you know, um, whether they love it, whether they hate it, or whether they think it's underrated and so forth. Uh, so we'll have, um, it'll probably end up being a pretty long episode as I splice all that together, but we'll be talking to um, all the friends of the podcast about their specific movie. And Frank will be um, reviewing um, himself um uh what, what do they call that in your business world frank um uh like the the self-performance like review type thing do they have a term yeah, that's pretty much it self-evaluation that that's it that's what i'm trying to uh, what, what are we calling them this year do we they, we just change what we call them they're um pe somethings hmm. pers maybe performance evaluation report okay um that that sounds about right like just get it down the acronym so you can um take like any kind of like meaning or humanity away from it um you said to do them in december right so frank's going to be doing a ppr um on his uh on himself um from the first 99 episodes of the podcast where frank is going to determine what his top five mistakes were um uh in terms of movies he picked and put on list and um, maybe shouldn't have um, or regrets in some way um, after the fact. Um, so that should be fun. Um, and then the rest of the year will be continuing on with top five lists um, pretty much as we normally do. Um, so all that given, um, I just wanted to kind of give you a little preview for the month and the some things in the upcoming year. Uh, let's go into your number five movie on the top five uh, 1980s animated films. It is, and you have already this year, screwed me with the four names um so this will be a continuing trend as i probably butcher these names um although i'm trying to get better so number five on your list is 1988's grave of the fireflies it is directed by isoya takahata and it is voice acted by Sitomu tatsumi and ayano shiraishi and it has a 100 percent from critics on rotten tomatoes and 95 percent from audiences you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you have it on the list um so the historical um biopic not even biopic the historical film historical drama of the list um Follows two children uh, who are existing in, to- or in Kobe, Japan, um, during the end of World War II. Um, their father is a naval officer. Their mother is a housewife. 
Um, their mother ends up getting killed during some bombings, um, incendiary bomb bombings. Um, and they're sent to live with their aunt, who is increasingly bitter towards them because they represent extra mouths to feed in the house. And because they're both young, I think um, four and eight, maybe, or 12 and six, or I can't remember their ages. Um, very young, though. Um, they eventually are kind of driven out of their aunt's house by their own feelings of like being unwanted and um, they die. So that's the movie. It's animated. Um, it's one of the more, I'm kind of being cavalier about it. Like this movie is a pretty brilliant examination of war and its effects on civilians, like not military personnel. Um, in the sense that it's a lot of very similar kind of to Black Rain, which we reviewed last year. Mm. Um, it's just in the idea that like you're looking at life from the perspective of people who have no control or um, really no agency over their own like health or well-being and also no control over their situation. Um, but are in these extraordinary circumstances in terms of like, you know, the last days of the war, the bombings in Japan, and then ultimately, um, like kind of being left to fend for themselves. Um, it's got that very like distinctly Japanese, um, I don't even know what to call that, uh, positivity in the face of adversity, kind of. Like, going to make the best of a bad situation. Um, when, like, Brit British, you know, movies would be called a sip up or lip, and in American movies, it doesn't exist because we're a bunch of whiners. Um, so we either are victorious or, like, we just die. Um, incredible voice acting, um, very touching, um, very sad, uh, especially because you're watching basically two children starved to death. Um, or I guess they died from mal malnutrition ultimately, but, you know, starvation. Um, with this young man, this young boy trying to kind of provide the illusion of stability and normalcy to his sister, even though, like, their situation's horrible. <clears throat> um, and just, like, the care that he shows for and the way that he attempts to, you know, kind of provide her that that kind of protect her from like the worst things that are happening in their lives and sort of make it feel like an adventure or a game, even though, you know, they lose their mother. Um, it's pretty unflinching, I think, in terms of a look at how war affects people. Mm -hmm. um, and for being something that was made in the 80s, it's pretty, pretty dark look at the way that Japanese people treated each other. Um, I mean, a lot of times, like, there's, I mean, I guess it was starting to change in, like, real, um, actual film during this time, but, you know, people were hesitant to kind of criticize, like, Japanese government or, um, you know, the Japanese people in general for their behavior, but I think this is a pretty open-eyed look at that stuff, and it's, um, Really yeah, powerful. yeah, with that ant character. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Especially. And the thing is, is, it's done in a way where you're not even 
I mean, maybe this is just me. You don't even look at her as a villain. You just kind of like, you almost feel bad for her because like what's pushing her to feel that way, you know, like she's becoming colder and harder inside because of external circumstances too. And yeah. She's not able I mean, to... I think you can judge her for being craven a little bit, but I mean, sure. um, right. But you can understand where she's coming from, I suppose. But, um, make you cry, um, pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, I think this movie gets you pretty early on. Um, even like the initial like opening scenes of the movie are kind of gut wrenching even before you know the characters, and then it really doesn't relent. Um, beautifully animated. I made the. I think it might be in terms of like its overall importance. I think it's the first or second most important movie on this list. Mm-hmm. Um, just in terms of cultural relevance and like what it led to um and it made some best sub lists from like actual critics not to like steal your thunder um for this year but and from an entertainment standpoint like if you it's a difficult movie to watch and you and i have talked a number of times and you specifically about how it's not something you necessarily ever want to watch again just because it is so impactful Uh um which is a testament to how good it is but it's still you know, for like lighthearted, like animated fare doesn't really fall into that. So, but yeah, it's a brilliant movie. Yeah, no, it it, it is. Um, when I when I first watched this, and I was somebody let me borrow it. I think it was Chuck probably. Um, here or so, and I remember watching it. Um, you know, my you know alone and um, like crying. It felt like the entire movie like the first time i saw it when i was like probably 20 um something along those lines um and then never had a movie like affect me that emotionally for that extended period of time um and then i made the mistake of like watching it again at least in part i remember over at chuck's house one night um and everybody trying like not to like tear up um, <laughs> in front of each other um and then I haven't watched it since, but and that was within a year of each other. The thing that I found, this is still, a, it's still an amazing movie. I still teared up um, at a, at a few points in this, but what disturbed me the most, I think I texted you about is like, emotionally, it didn't hit me as much as it did 20 years ago. Um, and I don't know if I like that idea um, that it doesn't affect me as emotionally as it used to um i don't know i don't want to think about the implications of that potentially um yeah it's it's strange i don't know like i i definitely it, it i agree it definitely didn't hit me nearly as hard and it's been 20 years since i've seen this movie maybe yeah same yeah maybe a little more than that cuz i i didn't watch it with you guys when you were watching it cuz i'd already seen it so mm-hmm. i didn't necessarily feel the need to like subject myself to that again right um yeah i don't know i mean you can't even say that like because you know from the outset of this movie what the fate of these characters are right like it doesn't pull any punches there so it's not like it catching you off guard and maybe that's on purpose so that you're not caught off guard like you're not being hopeful that right things are going to work out the whole time or yeah 
the father's going to show up and like you know right from the beginning like what's it's almost like they're ghosts like telling you their tales for from beyond the grave like this is the story of me or whatever mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know yeah but the thing that's still most impactful is the voice acting and i watched the you know subtitled version but the the, the japanese voice acting um of, of the little girl um there's there's something about the animation of that little girl and the voice actor that does that that is um that just tugs at your heart like the entire time to me um and i i don't know why i don't know what what it is about either of those things but um that's what really gets you more than anything but yeah no i i think this is like this is even though it's like number five on your list it still seems to me like you were saying it's like an importance of the like one or two it's like this is like something if you haven't seen in your life it's like you need to see it yeah it's it's it's, it's an actual it's it's an important film yeah. um and again i think like your question about what's the difference between you know like foreign animation and american animation is i think that's part of it is that they take this topic that i mean doesn't really lend itself to animation in the sense that you could have easily filmed this and there's plenty of um japanese movies that are you know we talked about like i said like black rain right yep in terms of like what it's looking at but they film it or they create it as an animated movie and it's really impactful and I think there's a lot of small things they can do, like especially um like when when her bones like topple out of that candy um uh. can in the beginning and then like her ghost is there waiting for his ghost. I mean that shit's like yeah. yeah. It's beautiful and it's like sad and um it's an incredible visual metaphor for like persistence of life, I guess basically. You know, yeah. and that's something that you couldn't really show. Like something small like that that wouldn't be something you can necessarily show in a non-animated um, format, but uh, just I don't you know, talking I'll... about like the gum drop, like uh, the candy drop, like holder, like uh, uh, that's 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 horrific. Yeah, like and and I, I what I'm thinking of is the good scenes with it, like not even like the the, the tragedy parts of it. It's just like uh, like the idea of her like wanting one and crying, you know, like and that kind of stuff. And it's like that that it just haunts you, like some of that stuff. Like yeah. Um, yeah, really great movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I didn't. It was from critics. I didn't really find much. Um, like I said, it was a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, the only criticism really was like what you would expect. I think is that it was too dark um, for a lot of people in terms of like some audience members watching it. Um, um, the only other criticism I really found out besides like the darkness um, of it is. Uh, a couple of references to the idea that the care, like the children, or like the the boy, is frustrating to watch with the decisions that he makes. So I'm I'm, I'm guessing they particularly talk about the decision to leave the aunt's house. Um, is something that they found frustrating. Yeah, but that's that's not taking into account the. Again, like I said, like a lot of the, um, a lot of the characters motivations and emotional reactions in this movie are very japanese yes and having watched an inordinate amount of like japanese films in my life both animated and not like i can tell you that 
he's protecting his honor. He's like protecting his sister from shame. He's, you know, being like the man of the house and sticking his chest out and putting his chin up to like stand in the face of adversity. I mean, and there's a little bit of pride in it. Like, don't get me wrong, like in, in that behavior. But I mean, yeah, you're exactly right. He's yeah. It's if if you've watched enough Japanese movies, I mean that's just I mean, this is a culture that was committing ritual suicide even into like the nineteen seventies. You know what I mean? Like people right. were killing themselves over like like rather than face, you know, shame or bring shame to their families. So the idea that this kid would reasonably think that he could go out on his own. I mean, if they can find food, they're no worse off than they are anyway. You know what I mean? Right. So, sure. Yeah. Although, I mean, ultimately, they end up being worse off. Yeah. All right. So, number four on your list, coming back to America, is 1982's The Secret of Nim. Um, it is directed by Don Bluth. It's, uh, it's voice acted by Elizabeth Hartman, Derek Jacoby, Dom DeLuise, Shannon Doherty, and Will Whedon. Um, it has a 93% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 85% from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you like it so much? Uh, so based on the book, uh, Miss Frisbee and the Rats and Nim, um, it follows um, uh, Mrs. Brisby, uh, who's a widowed mouse, field mouse, um, taking care of her three children, four children, one of whom the youngest is a boy who's really sick. Um, you find out that her husband was uh, this notable like rat warrior in this warren of rats um, who all have kind of like a super or preternatural, supernatural sentience and intelligence to him. Um, the farmer whose land they inhabit is about to till the fields. Um, so Miss Brisby has to move her home before this tilling occurs. While the rats, um, the leader of the rats, uh, Nicodemus, figures out that when the farmer does this, um, their home will be destroyed anyway and they have to move. Um, there's a rat named Jenner who's kind of like the, he's the antagonist of the movie, who doesn't want the rats to move. So he's kind of like, doing these like underhanded machinations to keep them in place. And that's it pretty much. I mean, it's an action adventure um, uh, film, I don't know, movie. Um, it's also kind of an examination of the effects, you know, man's, and this is like a, a theme with a couple of these movies. Um, man's use of science and like, what goes too far and then if you do something and you create life like do you have responsibility to that life or you know um what constitutes like sentience and uh, there's a lot of like really kind of like high-minded philosophical and like scientific ideals that they sort of gloss over there but are still there um and it's just a really it's it's a beautiful movie and unfortunately at least the version that I watched on Prime had a lot of um, graininess to it, but it's hand animated cells. Um, the uh, backgrounds are watercolored almost, like they're really beautiful, yes. beautiful backgrounds. Um, it's got a surprisingly complex story for being a children's movie. 
Um, I always thought it was like watching it this time. I realized like, oh, well, it's not really overly complex. It just it seemed like that to me as a kid because it was so much more than, you know, like the paper thin plots that you were used to seeing on Saturday morning cartoons. Um, wonderful uh, crew of voice actors in the movie. Um, I mean, you named them in the beginning, but um, you know, particularly Derek Jacoby's really good in it. Dom DeLuise. Um, Dom DeLuise maybe the best performance playing uh, uh, not Peter is that his name? The Peter, Crow the Crow, I think it was Peter uh, Jeremy. Jeremy Jeremy yeah, John Carradine I forgot to mention as well but he um, plays the Great Owl but it's only like a five minute thing yeah, it's um it's a very entertaining movie. It's pretty uh pretty briskly paced. There's not a lot of downtime to it. I mean things just kind of move scene to scene. Uh this is a movie that I saw in the theater, so I have a lot of like personal affection for it. It's also got this really weird not weird, that's not the right word. It's got a very almost forward thinking look at kind of a cyberpunk aesthetic. Um, or steampunk aesthetic, I guess is probably the better way to put it, where electronics combined with natural, like, physics combined with magic in order to make all these things occur. Um, and it's really neat. Like, one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, and it's really brief, and this is probably going to sound silly, but when, um, when Mrs. Brisby first enters the the warren of the rats, you know, like their thorn bush that they live under. And her and um uh what's his name? Mr. Uh is it the mouse. Um Mr. Ages and Jonathan gotcha. all get in the um uh the lantern and like the lantern like descends into the water and then the water like bubbles out it's like a submersible i mean it's just right. the, the animation in that scene and like just the idea behind it um especially from a kid that you know spent a lot of time playing with action figures and like like the kitchen was like the cobra base or whatever like the living room you know like using found objects around the house to be like part of my adventures like it was really inspiring to me so yeah so i really enjoy um Really enjoy it. Yeah, I um I hadn't seen this, and I did not. I don't. Rem- I didn't remember anything watching this. I hadn't. Se- I know I'd seen it when I was young. I didn't really remember much about it, like that much, except for like the way some characters looked. Um, I expected for some reason to feel like it would be dull when I went into watching this, but um, it tells a lot of a lot of story at a brisk pace. Um, in like a pretty low runtime, right? It's like 125 or something like that, like an hour 25. Like not very long. Yeah. Um and I thought it was weird. Like I just think this is a weird movie. Like that doesn't mean it's not good. I think I liked this. I enjoyed it um a lot actually. But it's a strange movie like you were talking about with the combination of like the fantasy aspect of these animals, but there's sci-fi like elements in it and some magic. It seems kind of like it's, it's, it's just a really bizarre like combination of those things. And the thing I think I was most impressed by, but also found weird is the idea that it's like a widowed mother is the protagonist. Right. It's like, when the hell do you see in the eighties, a 
a female protagonist in an animated film in the first place, really. But actually, I'm, I'd be curious. I don't know a whole lot about Don Bluth. Um, I'd actually be curious how much influence he had from uh, Japanese animation because that that was stuff that would happen in like foreign animation where you would have a female character or female protagonist and definitely I mean you can tell that the man's like a huge fan of stuff like um like Errol Flynn like sword and right washbuckling movies um especially because of the sword fights at the end of the movie just the way that they're blocked and presented are very it's, it's very classical like it, it feels like you're watching like Errol Flynn like fight someone um yeah I don't know I mean, I weird like I I hesitate to use weird. I just think it's, I think it's maybe not revolutionary, but it's definitely ahead of its time. Yeah, and well, you I wouldn't. Mean, I mean, you, you look at Blue's career, and it's like he he starts here at Disney, but quickly like moves out, and is successful for the the most popular movies that aren't Disney movies, like in America. Um, like what he he does like a Land Before Time, um, American Tale, American Tale, yeah, All Dogs Go to Heaven, yeah, right, yeah. I don't have his list up in front of me, but it's like he does like a number of like those popular movies of the eighties. Um, but and he was also responsible for Dragon Slayer in part, like him and his group, um, the video game. Um, yes, yeah, and it's like yeah, so like this guy is like you know, I, yeah, I very accomplished um you know and i for for a a very specific type of like kind of like animation that kind of delved away a little bit from disney um and i i love the animation of this like i just thought it was like there was just so many oddities that i did not expect um at all from this movie um but the yeah the, the 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 mother protagonist is something that like I just thought was completely odd, but worked at the same time. Um, Vincent Canby um, did not like this movie. Um, he said that it contains sequences that are as ferocious as anything in Snow White, and could have a five-year-old reaching for his Valium. And other scenes are disarmingly dopely idyllic as anything in Disney's old silly symphonies. The story manages to be sentimental without being especially moving. More troublesome, though, is there's no easily identifiable central character. It has no Snow White, no Bambi, no Dumbo. It only has a rather plucky little widowed mouse, Miss Brisby, whose determination to save her house and her children is noble, but I suspect not the sort of thing to grab the attention of a hip toddler. She is sweet, staunch, but colorless, um, a sweet, staunch, but colorless mouse mom, the characters are well drawn, but not especially memorable. The only exception is Jeremy, the crow, and he is memorable for the wrong reasons, as the voice is supplied by Dom DeLuise, whose real life professional personality defines the personality of the crow, which could lead to a certain amount of confusion. Um, so, I mean, basically, that's just like his long winded way of saying that he thought it was kind of dull. Um, but um, considering I was bringing up the, the thing about like thinking it was actually interesting that you have a fe- like a female mother um, as the lead. Um, it's like, do you think that keeps this from being recognized more so? 
Like, like he says, they ha- it doesn't have an identifiable character. I guess and it's like you know, like Bambi or Snow White or something like that. Well, I don't, I don't even agree with that. I mean, I think that Mrs. Brisby is an identifiable character. I don't know. I don't but, know why. But does it reach the certain popularity? I'm saying, I guess, is like I think, and that's I think that's what he's hinting at is that like he. I think it's just because it's dark, yeah. and a little darker than what. Yeah. And if you're sitting there and you're a parent and you have, and not not to say that like Snow White and Bambi and I don't know, I mean a lot of this stuff has darkness to it, like especially like the pre pre nineties Disney stuff can be can be kind of dark, but I don't think he has much money to make the movie, um, you know, as he would have at a, at, at a Disney studio. I think that shows. Um, I don't know that as many people saw this movie, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like, it's one of those things where if you bring up, I don't know, I can think of a, what was before Little Mermaid in the Disney catalog? Like, if you bring up something like, like All Dogs Go to Heaven, like a lot of people have seen that. Right. Not as many people have seen Secret and Him, and I think maybe it's partly, maybe it was, what? what is it, 82, right, you said? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of it too. That yeah. those kids weren't really old enough to go see it necessarily, and they didn't come into like watching the animation until later. Or I don't know. I mean, yeah. I've always loved Secret and Him. Like I said, I saw it in the theater. I owned it on VHS and I owned it on DVD, and it was a movie that Frankie and I used to watch together when he was young. So you know, I have like multiple levels of nostalgia for it, and I've always thought it was a good movie. So I don't know. I don't know why it wouldn't be as popular. I don't agree with a lot of his points about what he feels is wrong with it. Yeah. Um, I just think it kind of slipped through the cracks in some ways. Yeah. Okay. Just like The Last Unicorn. If it wasn't for like like a very dedicated cult following to that movie, how many people really like love True. The Last you know what I mean? I would have never seen it if it hadn't have been for people that like a couple people that like I knew that really loved it a lot. You know, growing up and like promoting it, kind of like, right? It would have been one of those things like you would put on a list someday, and I'd be like, I actually never saw that. You know, like, I don't know. um, okay. So it's just like there was a movie that we that I mentioned when you asked me about stuff that I didn't put on the list, and that's um, Nausicaa and the Valley of Wind. Uh-huh. That movie was cut up and shortened by um. I can't remember who owned the rights to it. Uh, Universal, maybe, or New Line or something. Mm-hmm. And Package is a completely different, like, movie. And that's part of the problem with stuff like Nim is there was, like, all this stuff that was animated that was kind of just, like, shoved out there. The other thing, too, with Nim, and I just thought of this. This might actually be, like, the more salient point. Nim's released in 82. What would you say, like, the true advent of VHS it's like 84, 85, maybe even 86. Yeah, yeah I had to So yeah. Nim is there prior to VHS. So it's yeah. not like anyone's like going out and renting this movie upon release. Right. And then and mass produced VHS, like where people like are owning them, isn't until like 86, 87, like a lot of people are owning them. And even then it's super expensive to buy a VHS. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so by that those point, people forgotten. are going to go buy, you know, yeah. people my parents' age, my mom's going to go buy Snow White. Right. Which was something she loved. Or like Fantasia. 
Sure. Not that Fantasia was even easily available back mm-hmm. then. But, you know, like, they would buy the things they knew and not. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yep. So, I it, if I had to say anything, I think that's probably, like, the biggest. It's a timing thing. issue. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Makes perfect sense. Okay. Because there's um, lost oh. stuff, too. And not, not, not to belabor this point. But there's stuff that, like, I've only seen once or twice that I have vague memories of, and I couldn't even, like, name you. Like, this Mark Twain one is a good example of things where it was just from that time period, and it wasn't something that you necessarily, because it wasn't something that your parents remembered and would rent for you when you were a kid because they had the buying power anyway. And it wasn't something where you would have necessarily seen it. So if it was sitting on the video shelf and, you know, you have, a thousand things to choose from is probably not going to be high on your list of things to pick. Right. To watch. So Yeah. No. That, all that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I would like to, I don't know if we ever would be able to do it. I would like to do like a, maybe this is something we can get a Ryan in on because he's really into it too. I'd like to talk about like the influence of like the VHS cover on your viewing habits and like what, what are like the top, you know, five or ten VHS covers that made you rent movies? Hmm. Like when you were a kid, like when you were sitting there in the aisle and all things being equal, like you saw, you know, the hanging baby doll baby of deep red versus the um the guy with the garden shears of the burning, and it's like, oh, sure. this deep red movie looks like lame in this burning movie. You know, right. like what pushed you in one direction or another. Right. And, and, like, I wonder, well, and, and from an advertising standpoint, it's like what tells you what that movie is with right. like as little information as possible. Like, you know, I wonder, like I wonder Sil- if Nim- Silent Light, Deadly Night is the first thing that popped in my mind when you said that. It's like it tells you every I think that's the one I'm thinking of is the Santa going down the chimney with the yeah. Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's like that tells you everything you need to know about the movie. Right. And it's a a thing that like you should be, you should have good feelings of doing something, getting ready to do something awful. And as a kid, that's right. like powerful. Right. But Secret of Nim's cover is just Mrs. Brisby standing in like this really busy, yeah, confused background of like um, brambles and whatever. So I can see like maybe and again like why people would just skip it over because if you didn't know what it was about, right, right, yeah. All right, yeah, so I'm done. Okay. Um, no, that's very interesting. I, I like the idea of like looking at because we we we've occasionally got into those conversations about the movie covers and stuff at different points, like here and there. Um, we tend to do that on the quick cage for some reason more, probably because like I'm looking up information like consistently, and I'm not as prepared for the quick cage because I never know what it is most of the time. But um, but we end up talking about movie covers a lot and stuff there. All right, so number three on your list is also from the year 1988. Um, it is directed by Katsuhiro Otomo um, and is voice acted by Mitsuo Iwata, Nozumu Sasaki, and Mami Koyama. And it has a 90%. Um, oh, it's, it's Kira. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I was so focused on the names um, because, and I almost nailed them. I only have made one small like adjustment. Um, Pretty close. Um, uh but it's Akira, um, and it has a 90% from uh, critics and a 90% from audiences. I uh, want to tell us a little bit about this movie and uh, why you have it on the list. Uh, so based on a long-running manga by Katsuhiro Otomo, 
um, that ran through the majority of the 80s, I guess. Um, it's basically the story of a post-World War III Japan that's in kind of like a rebuilding phase. Um, it's overrun by gangs, um, teenage gangs that kind of just like run the streets and do whatever they want. Um, the military has a much larger presence, um, including having like military vehicles on the streets and like soldiers that are immediately responding to things like, um, like things that you would think of the police responding to. So it's basically a military state. Um, and in this, in this world, uh, there are these hidden beings that have psychic powers, um, that were also a result of government experimentation and projects um, to try and hone like psychic abilities to be government weapons. Um, but they're all children or they're adults that have like n- not really aged because, you know, their psychic powers like have kept them like small. So they're like wizened like children. Um, a member of a biking gang, uh, Tetsuo Shima, uh, gets in an accident where he inadvertently hits one of these kids one day um, whose psychic powers shield him, but like cause Tetsuo to be severely injured. Um, Tetsuo is taken to a secret government facility and basically his psychic powers are unlocked. Um, he's unable to control those psychic powers. So he's sort of combination of having low self-esteem and abandonment issues. Um, and maybe a little bit of like hidden megalomaniacal tendencies. Um, he goes crazy and is basically destroying Tokyo. Um, his friend, uh, Kanida, who's the leader of their biker gang, um, plucky, sort of like swashbuckling, like ne'er-do-well, um, is trying to stop him both out of love of friend and also just anger at what his friend is doing. It's, um, for being like a, you know, two hour film, it's, I think it's a, a pretty well-realized relationship. Like, probably the best one in the movie between the two of them. Um, ultimately, Tetsuo is taken away um, by a greater psychic power, this kid, Akira, the titular Akira, who was the first, like, the most powerful of, like, the original batch of psychic kids. Um, and at the end, there's just hope that, like, the world will move on and, like, things will be better. And but that the promise that at some point like these kids are going to return, probably even more powerful than what they are. Um, mixed in with all this is some ideology about the role of the military and government, um, governmental corruption. Um, it doesn't really delve too much in any like one topic, just because it's condensing a several thousand page, you know, comic work into a, a two hour and how long is this? Two hours, fifteen minutes, maybe something like that. Something like that. Two hour and fifteen minute long. It's actually just exactly two hours. Uh, movie. One of the most culturally significant movies, um, anime features released in the United States. Um, in my opinion, the reason that anime is popular in the United States is because of this movie. Um, it's w- without having. So I've read Akira, like all of it, and without having that knowledge, it's sometimes I think difficult to understand what's happening on the screen because they're taking 
really expansive narrative arcs and condensing them into sometimes like 10 minutes, mm-hmm. five minutes in time. I mean, there's a lot of stuff with um, the resistance group uh, led by Ryu um, that they just completely like gloss over or combine multiple characters into one or change motivations. It's it's the Lord of the Rings argument for the most part. Um but it's an interesting look at like the power of like the hidden potential of humans. Um you know stuff that we've talked about or that you would talk about in science class like the power contained within an atom or the power contained within a cell. And I think a lot of you know, there's still a lot of like post post Hiroshima, post Nagasaki, yeah. um, like psychic scars that you see in this work, mm-hmm. which is like the ultimate destructive force of like a small thing um, that, that can wipe out like you know an entire civilization basically. And what's the responsible way to deal with that? And whose hands does that belong in? And um. Beautifully animated, uh, has one of animated movie or not, in my opinion, one of the best scores in any movie ever, especially early on, like the stuff when they're racing motorcycles around Tokyo, like that. Um, that's actually no NOH music. Mm-hmm. Like they, the person that did the score was, I guess, classically trained in like no instrumentation and so like all that stuff is traditional japanese um instruments plus you know vocals almost like an acapella accompaniment to these like you know wooden drums and biwas and whatever so yeah i mean it's i saw this movie when i was shit 13 maybe in a theater in dc um maybe 14 i was young yeah. Um, I bought a bootleg of it at a comic show when I was like a couple years later because it was almost like I couldn't even believe that such a thing existed. Like seeing just the sheer magnitude of like the animation of this movie and the level of detail that comes. And plus like the way they animate characters' faces and stuff like there's very, it's a very human looking movie despite how fantastical all the elements are um and i know there's some things that are like like i said like sloppy with the story um and it kind of loses its thread after a certain point a little bit i think again depending on how much you're invested in that world and how much you know about it i think helps um but yeah just i don't know it's 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 one of my favorite movies of my childhood um, my teenagers, I would say, like my early pubescence. Um, and I still love watching it today. Like I really, I watched it last week. I really enjoyed watching it. I will say this, the version that's up now streaming, the sub version does a much better job explaining that story than the dubbed version, which is what I grew up with. Right. Which was almost like no care taken at all to explain what was happening. And some of the worst localization, like, ever, to the point where it's almost a comedy when you watch the original dub. And I've never, I have not been able to find, I wish I had my VHS copy that I got in, like, 94, 95, um, because that dub is amazing. Like, it would be, it's, it would be a lot of fun to watch it again. Um, Canada, you pee brain. Anyway. 
You know, it's Titswoo, P-Brain. He wants my bike. That's the funniest thing. It's the guy that does Tetsuo's voice has like this yeah. snotty, like snide voice actor doing it. And it's always like, my bike. He wants my bike. Yeah. Like that's the whole movie. It's just him talking about his bike. Yeah. So. It would be a huge investment, but if you've watched Akira and you enjoy it, it is really worth trying to track down and read the manga that it's based on because it's it's brilliant. I mean sure that's gotta be available for I don't know who has the rights to it anymore. Um Marvel of all places, uh through their epic imprint, owned the rights to it in the early nineties because a lot of where I read it was monthly serializations through Epic Comics. Mm-hmm. Um I have I think 50 or 60 issues of it from when I was a kid. Um, and then they released it in the late 90s, early 2000s in um, graphic novel form. Right. Um, which is how Chuck had it. Yeah, does six volumes sound right, probably, of it? Yeah, it's probably about right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, probably, it's probably about 2,000. I mean... They, they have yeah. to be like 200 pages each. Yeah, that, that, that's probably right. Um, yeah, so I mean, they're available. I mean, it's not inexpensive um but they're all available like prime eligible um all volumes ranging between 17 to 24 dollars um i just mean from like uh you know somebody basically like putting forth that cost output with i, I don't finding them some way to read them like through kindle or whatever would probably be a better way to start mm, right sure that's the other thing too like a they capture Otomo's look of his characters like perfectly in this. Mm-hmm. Like it's amazing just how. Did you ever read Bone by Jeff Smith? I did. So you know how Bone had like, like Jeff Smith has this almost sublime way of capturing the feel of motion and liveness in his still images. It's like yeah. it's, it feels like you're watching like a like a like like a Looney Tunes, like a Mary Melodies cartoon or something. No, but always very. There's just like a kinetic feeling to it. Like that's how that's how Otomo's art style is. Like it's it's like like you feel the action on the page, and the film yeah. captures perfectly. Yeah. Like it's, and you, you just described, I think, exactly what I what I don't like about this. Like What's to a that? T, is is that kind of animation? Um, like overall, like I find it. Um, I hate to agree with our with our foil, Dave Kerr. Um, he describes it at one point as. Uh, let me find it here. <sighs> says too much of the movie is played out in static frames of a of what seems like a comic strip and when movement is used it isn't to define character as disney does or establish rhythm as a warner's cartoon does but simply for physical impact the pounding away eventually becomes monotonous and i don't know if i completely 100% agree with that but i understand where he's coming from it's very much what i said about tetsuo the iron man when we talked about that in the avant-garde horror episode last year right um I get overwhelmed 
and kind of have anxiety watching particularly the last 20 to 25 minutes of that movie um because it's so just like it's too much Uh, rosenbaum says something about like how like the background ends up like the background uh ends up overshadowing the foreground um in the movie which i kind of agree with too it's almost like i can't process all of it at once and it becomes monotonous to me and then it just becomes nothing to me Hmm. like it just becomes blobs after a while to me like fleshy veiny like blobs of things and then like action and then it's like i like i i get really overwhelmed by the by the end of that movie um I hated this movie when I was a teenager, when I saw it, when I was like eight, 17, probably, or something like that. I watched it again this time, as you told me to watch it, and Brandy and I watched it, and I was into it much more this time for the first half hour to 40 minutes, because I think I understood it better this time, right. um, maybe than I did before. And eventually it just reaches a point where so much shit happens, I just lost interest. So what point does it lose you, would you say? I really hate... Is it Tetsio? Is the one that becomes kind of like the villain, I guess, right? Yeah. Like... Yeah. I don't know if it's a particular action or plot beat like that loses me it's something when he becomes more the focus and he gets more like screen time like eventually like i start losing interest i really dislike that character like a lot i hate the way he's drawn like i don't Mm. like like i don't like it i don't know how to describe it it's like I just kept looking at his fucking forehead and getting angry. Yeah, part of that is supposed to be like a not so subtle way of showing you that his mental capacity is increasing right. by like expanding yeah. the right. height from the top of his eyebrow to the ridge yeah. of his hairline. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, it, 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 he's he's definitely you're supposed to feel uncomfortable looking at him, I think. Yeah. Percent because he's supposed to be. It worked, man. I I think the fear. I think the fear is he would become too much of like an anti-hero for people, where people would be almost rooting for Tetsuo. Mm. So they're trying to dehumanize him, but at the same time allow you to still feel sympathy for him through the flashbacks that um, Kanata has to their childhood. Right. So I think it's like a delicate balancing act that they're trying to do there yeah. while showing his transformation into a monster while still retaining some measure of humanity. Yeah, ultimately this time around, like I didn't hate it like I did when I was I, I think I've become more reasonable probably as as I've gotten Plus older. I more anime. I I have, but it's like I didn't hate it um like I did when I was a teenager. But I wasn't a big fan, um, particularly of like the last half of it. Like I just feel it's like too much and overwhelming and kind of to me pointless because of that. Like I didn't really take a lot of They they do not do a good job of wrapping up 
the story of them of yeah. that movie because it I mean, doesn't really yeah. end necessarily. Yeah, I mean, maybe if I had did have more background, like maybe it'd be more impactful. But it didn't really work on a narrative level to me of being emotionally or intellectually like um you know impactful to me and it didn't work on any kind of subtextual level to me like necessarily like so it was just kind of there i understand the importance of this like it's definitely something i even if i don't like it it's like again it's like if you've never seen this you probably need to watch it because it's that important um if you're if you're somebody who really likes film or just you know or animation like i mean like you should know this i mean you should see it but um but yeah i just kind of walked away like non-plus still even though um i liked it better than the first time yeah, i mean i i legit feel if you've ever watched like adult swim and marked out to something in like naruto or bleach right. or whatever right like, this this is the thing that made that possible in, yes. in my right. states the popularity and i mean i would even say dragon ball stuff that i like you know like like has some of its like i feel like um the popularity i should say at dragon ball of being put on like something like the cartoon network might have come from the popularity of this yeah i mean this this goes a long way because there's definitely a lot of stuff before this and there was a lot of shit that was stolen from um japanese you know animated films and tv shows mm-hmm. a lot a lot by disney honestly like for the united states but this was the thing where you knew what akira was i mean this was like they called it um jet animation right. um back then like it wasn't anime necessarily mm-hmm. um but this is the thing that like you saw at conventions you know they mm-hmm. toured like like i said i saw this I don't know if it was called Otacon back there, but it's the equivalent of like what Otacon is today. So it was like right. their anime. See, um, and we sat in a theater and watched it in like ninety ninety one. I can't remember what year, but it was amazing. Oh I Jesus, like, that long ago, huh? That's yeah, I was crazy. I mean, we I drove down with some older friends and we went. And, I think it was ninety one. I'm almost positive that was maybe ninety two. Anyway, around that time, early nineties. Okay. Wild. Yeah, no, I still still worth watching. Like I, all right. Um, now coming back to America again. Um, number two on the list is also 1988. It is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. is directed by Robert Zemeckis. The stars Bob Hoskins, Christopher Lloyd, um, Joanna Cassidy, and has voice acting by Charles uh, Flusher. Um, uh Fleischer. Um and it has a 97% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 84% from audiences. Um I guess do you want to tell us a little bit about this movie um and then why it's on the list. Yeah, probably the most well-known movie right. um by general audiences on the list. Um also the movie that I sort of I kind of vacillated before I even like really gave you my preliminary list of putting on there because it is just as much live action as animated, but I think the animated portion of it takes precedence in terms of the way the actors have to like interact with it. Um, and for the historical nature of the act, the idea of animation, it's like, you know, and how it's used. I mean, extremely important. So it's set in the late, 40s no 
late 1930s, I guess, in uh, Hollywood? No, it's late 40s. It's uh, 47. Okay. Um, existing in a world where cartoons and humans exist simultaneously. Um, with cartoons living in a suburb adjacent to Hollywood called Toontown. Um, it follows one of the most popular actors, um, Roger Rabbit, who's framed for the murder of, um, I can't remember his name, Milton Acme or whatever. Um, the guy that founded Toontown. Marvin, Marvin Acme. Yeah. Marvin Acme. Mm -hmm. Um, who's caught in a, patty cake trysts with Roger's wife Jessica Rabbit uh, um, Eddie Valiant who's a kind of washed up ex police officer who's become a private investigator and also is an alcoholic um, is hired to both frame or take the pictures that incite Roger and then Roger basically convinces him to help defend him um, against this uh force of law from Toontown, Judge Dredd, who's basically judge, jury, and executioner for any Toon-related crimes, and is shown to use turpentine, a combination of what is like, ethane, turpentine, and something else. Um, right. To dissolve tunes into nothing. Um, Eddie's a guy that's really like self-loathing and down in his luck. His brother was killed by a tune. So he hates like all tunes, but over the course of the movie, he kind of regains his his pride and his like hero spirit, and ultimately um, ends up defending Roger and saving the day. And um, yeah, it's so you told me this fact, and it's all I could think about when I was watching this movie that it was sort of based on a plotline of what would have been the third in like the Loose Chinatown trilogy. Yes. Um, after Chinatown and the two Jakes. Yep. You can definitely see it because the approach to a lot of things is 100% straight out of Robert Town. Um, yep. And 100% like it's, it's honestly probably one of the best film noirs of the 1980s. Sure. Um, just in its reverence for the subject matter. Um, Valiant's character is like kind of like the perfect foil for this boundless optimism of Roger and the sultry like femme fatale air of um, Jessica. Um, the sets are perfect. Like we, so you and I, you a while ago, me like just the other day, what, what we're talking about Mank, like we watched Mank. Mm -hmm. um, that is perfectly captured in this movie. Like that feel of like the 1940s in Hollywood. Right, just with like the Art Deco designs of the buildings and kind of like the seedier side of the alleys and stuff. And the language is perfect in it. Yeah. Um, I think it's got an amazing balance of accessible humor for children and also some stuff that's really kind of meant strictly for adults, um, including oh. some implications that people are homosexuals and um, perverts and Right. have fetishes and just the way it deals with alcoholism in general, like, you know, the fact that they call the dude Jack Daniels, like, that's right. 
Well, even the patty cake joke that you referenced, like the idea that they get caught, that Marvin Acme and Jessica Rabbit get caught playing patty cake, and the images are like flipped in succession, like to show them playing patty cake. But it's right. like you know that like the an adult knows that scene in well, shit, in Chinatown, right? Like, I mean, like they they know that right. scene, you know, where the where the husband is shown the photos, you know, oh, yeah, and, even beyond that, like. When when Eddie's taking the pictures of Jessica and um, right Marvin, right yes there's there she's making like orgasm noises yes you're right like during the and he uh-huh. makes a oh my god you know like yeah, you uh-huh. get the impression of like Eddie. right but it's it's always paid off with like a much more I don't know wholesome or innocent mm-hmm. like punchline but um. The animations and it's great. It's got really, it's got a really good soundtrack. Um, especially the "Why Don't You Do Right" song that she sings. Right. Um, and she actually ends up, which becoming, is pretty like, iconic. The, it, and she ends up becoming maybe the most recognizable figure, almost like just as much oh, as Roger yeah. Rabbit out of this whole movie. I mean, in some ways, in a disgusting way, and also sure, like the sure, right. the spawn of one of the craziest like urban legends of my childhood which is like pausing roger rabbit to see jessica rabbit's vagina that's like hidden mm-hmm. in the scene and, like when it, you wouldn't find it like oh it's not in this vhs disney took it out that's hilarious i never um, heard that i've never heard that one before it actually is there like you can see it really um and it, huh. it was taken yeah yeah but I didn't find that until I was like in my dream. yeah. I know that I've heard about phallics like stuff in like Little Mermaid and those kind of things in the coral reef, but I never heard of that one with the Roger Rabbit. Yeah, before. the cloud spell sex and um, uh, what's it called? Lying. Mm. Back in the day of hand animation, they could hide a lot of stuff. Sure. More subtly than now that you can easily dissect the film frame by frame. Right. Um. Also, pretty. Pretty amazing the variety and combination of animated characters that are in this movie, like mm-hmm. having Donald Duck and Daffy Duck interacting with each other in the same scene, and yeah. Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny interacting with each other in the same scene, and mm-hmm. it just goes to show how much the world has changed. Although I guess in the ways they still did that with stuff like um, Wreck It Ralph, like as a variety of characters in it, yeah. But you, you know what's funny about the Donald and the Daffy scene, though? It's like, notice how that, like, plays out. And I'm using wrestling terminology purposefully when I describe this, almost, is that nobody goes over. Oh, of course. Yeah, there's no way like, they could. Right. It was negotiated. Like, okay, like, we can do this, but it's like, it has to end, like, basically in a draw. Like, it's a no contest. Um like and and basically most people need to keep their their reputations intact um one can't go over the other and i thought that was like fascinating like watching it again and thinking of it in those terms and on, I, i'll i'll tell you that like i had i struggled with whether or not to put this as number one because i just had so much yes yeah so much of a good time watching it and was like so i couldn't believe how invested i was in it as a film in general. And let me tell you, like, next to Large Marge in um, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, uh-huh. Judge Judge Doom's, like, eyes poking out. Yep. Like, the animated eyes that he has. 
And the way that Christopher Lloyd moves, like when he's when he is Judge Dredd, mm-hmm. like that character is one of the darker parts of my childhood. Like, yep, agree. How scary, I guess, like he was. Yeah, like it's always really bothered me. Like, like, mm-hmm. yeah, like when he take when his tune voice comes out and like the tune eyes and stuff. Like, yeah, like that was like really disconcerting. Because um, I because I did see this in the theater. Like, this is one of the few that I did, like, in terms of, like, animated movies. And, um, yeah, that was very disconcerting, um, that that whole sequence. And it still is, like, to some degree. I mean... It is. Um, but it's effective, and it's, it's, it's a really good movie. Yeah, it really is. Um, I... I really enjoyed watching it again. I like a few years ago, I ended up like watching like the first 15 minutes and then like caught like the last 10 minutes of it. And, um, but watching all the way through, yeah, it's really effective. And it's like, now that I'm older and like I've seen it, cause I probably, I probably saw this at least a dozen, if not like 20 times when I was a kid. Um, like I had it on VHS, you know, like I mean, you know, watch it like a bunch, like on like probably like HBO or something, but like, um, but I haven't watched it in a long time besides it was like, you know, 20 minutes, like a few years ago. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I really took more away from it to some degree this time of like, uh, that I did, I think as a child necessarily, and maybe because I'm older, like just in the sense of like Eddie Valiant's struggle and his like, you know, what he's, what his character arc is like in it is like, wouldn't it work perfectly though for, for Jake Giddis? Like in some oh, ways, yeah, yeah like that's just the character arc itself. Like you know, would work perfectly of the guy who's become so fucking cynical that he can't see anything past the cons and the schemes and all those kind of things, and the guy who needs to learn how to be a, how to goof around again. Right. Um, because it's like you think it's like what's the first thing really you see with Jake Giddis, and it's like he's telling a joke, and it's like the last thing that he needs to learn is learn how to tell a damn joke again. Um, and it would have been, it would have worked perfectly. I don't think I'm reading too much into that. It wasn't that, it wasn't that much of a third movie to Chinatown, but it would have worked perfectly. Thematically, um, it so. That's what I'm saying. It's like, if you kind of like, yeah, broaden it out and kind of look at that, the, the, the stereotypical PI. Right. Well, it would have been, I mean, basically it becomes, a partial plot of like what LA Confidential is with the um, the freeways and stuff. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean. Um. But yeah, I thought this was brilliant. Like, I, 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 I really, really enjoyed watching this again. Um. I don't know if there's many like laugh out loud moments for me necessarily watching it, but there's a lot of chuckling throughout, like at little things, and like I just really enjoyed it. I just thought it was really good. Yeah, it's, um, it's really good. I, I I I love the animation. I love like you said the character interactions. I really invested more in Eddie Valiant this time around than I ever did when I was younger. Um, um I love like you know I I love noir stuff in general, but it's like it took itself seriously but not too seriously, and I think that's right. what I really enjoyed about it. Um, we talked a little bit about this off air one night, but. The casting of this and how they because I was really interested in how they landed on Bob Hoskins um because I thought it could be a price factor or like you know like maybe or something like that because maybe there's so much money spent on the animation so I want to just walk you through 
all the actors that were considered here and just say yes, maybe, or no to them. So first choice was Harrison Ford. Maybe. Chevy Chase was second. No. Bill Murray. Maybe. Yes, yes. Eddie Murphy. Yeah, I think Eddie Murphy would have been good. Robin Williams. Maybe. He'd have to get turned down. Robert Redford. Uh, No, that's terrible. (laughs) Nicholson was considered. Yeah. Maybe. Wallace Shawn. I'm going to say yes, because that's so weird. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like Wallace Shawn I could see being... um... Oh, shit. What's Eddie's brother's name? Um... Eddie Valiant? Eddie Valiant's brother was um Ted Valiant. It's 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 Theodore. Ted. Oh, Ted. You're saying Ted. Okay, gotcha. All right. Because it's it's Teddy and Eddie. Uh-huh. It, it, yeah, yeah. It came off. It came through weird on the um through the computer. Uh, and then Charles Grodin. Yeah, that's really weird. I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, Ed Harris. Yeah, Ed Harris would have been really good in it. Yeah. Um. Although Ed Harris would have been pretty young at that time, right? Ed Harris always looked like he was like yeah, he true. always looks like he's forty eight years yeah, old. Yeah, he was like Arn Anderson in wrestling. Yeah, uh-huh. you're right because he looked like he was like in his forties, like um, a year later in uh, Needful Things. So yeah, no, he would have worked there. Um, and then the other thing is they uh, Tim Curry was originally. Um, Auditioned, but they found him too terrifying for uh, Doom, which is really interesting. Uh, Christopher Lee um, was considered before. How do you feel about that? Christopher Lee would have been too dour for it. I think that um, Christopher Lloyd has the right combination of like classical menace and manic. Like wild, wild-eyed hyperactivity, right? And I don't. I think Curry would have been too much like purring menace for it. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's cold enough to affect like the the part of Judge Doom that needs to be in early in the movie. Yeah, and I think Chris really is too dry. Okay, so the other people that were considered before eventually, like Christopher Lloyd, end up getting this role were Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole for who? For Judge Doom, Doom? For Doom, yeah. No, that's terrible. F. Murray Abraham. I don't really have any feeling about that. Rodney McDowell. Yeah, that's fine. And Sting. I think Sting would have been good at it just because of how he was his um, fade in uh, mm-hmm. um, Dune. I just thought they were really interesting what if type things like because so many people were chosen and you end up with Bob Hoskins and 
Christopher Lloyd, you know, like um, after all those big name actors. But iconic in those roles, I think. I agree. Yeah, no. I mean, I think Bob Haskins is perfect for it. Because um, I was I was born, wondering about it, like, because I was like, I wonder if it's because Hoskins is British and kind of like a classically trained thespian. Like, maybe, like, they wanted somebody like that, potentially, to... Because they weren't going to be able to interact with anything. It was going to be a lot right. of it was going to be animation. Um, but they did have um, Fleischer dress up in a Roger Rabbit costume um, and actually stood behind the camera for most of the scenes so that there was something to interact against. Um, yeah, you can tell sometimes that Hoskins is definitely looking like at something. Yeah. There. Yeah. But yeah, no, I really enjoyed watching this movie again. Um, <clears throat> So that's that's all I'll say. I, but I thought the casting stuff was interesting to just at least talk about. <sighs> all right. So number one on your list is also from 1988. Um, it is My Neighbor Totoro, directed by Hayao Miyazaki. It's is voice acted by Noriko Hidaka, Chika Sakamoto, and Shigisoto Itoi. Um, it has a 94% from critics and a 94% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it's number one on your list? Uh, so a movie that I found right before my son was born, I guess I saw this movie. Um, it follows a family, um, a father and two young girls, um, who have moved to the country, um, both to be kind of close to the father's work. He's a professor, a history or archaeology professor, science professor, he's some kind of professor at university. The mother is in a um, convalescence home, um, recovering from some unnamed illness, probably tuberculosis or something similar. Um, that turns out to be a cold in the end anyway. So these two girls, they move into this large house, a large old house with their father, their imaginations immediately take over. They think they see like spirits in the house and while exploring the woods, they meet these kind of like guardians of the woods. Um, we go on adventures with them. Um, at one point, the mother falls ill and the hospital calls and lets the um, elder daughter know, which causes the younger daughter to run away. Um, and then there's a portion of the movie where they're trying to find the younger daughter and it's um Totoro who's this large raccoon creature that's the guardian of like this one large tree in the forest that sort of helps him out and takes care of him um that's really it I mean it's not much in the way of plot but it's just an incredibly wholesome and sweet look at childhood and imagination um sort of interesting to have this at the other end from Grave of the Fireflies, just because in a lot of ways, they're both very similar in terms of their very broad subject matter, which is young children dealing with adversity and older siblings looking after their younger siblings, um, but couldn't be more different in terms of like, you know, like tonality or whatever. Um, I don't know. It's beautiful. It's incredibly well animated. Um, the characters are exceptionally well animated and feel lifelike and realistic. The voice acting and it's amazing. Um, the children are precocious and 
clever and um, inquisitive without being like cloying or obnoxious. Um, it doesn't fall into the usual traps where there's like external adult or other kids that are like, you know, adversaries like driving them away from the social setting or whatever. Like the town people generally accept them and people are nice to them. And I don't know, it just makes you feel good to watch it. It's beautiful to watch. Makes you want to go play in a stream or go walk in the woods or something. That's how nice it looks. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I, I really love this movie. I can always watch this movie and enjoy myself watching it. Um, and part of that is just because it's beautiful. Part of that's because Frankie and I, when he was young, we used to watch this movie together and he really liked it a lot when he was a kid. Um, good score, good soundtrack. The opening song is really good. I don't know. There's really, it's, it's pretty flawless. I think I the even... fact that it's a, like a light on tension or conflict or anything like that is, is what makes it so in part, what makes it so enjoyable to watch? Oh yeah. hundred percent. Because you still have worries. The narrative, like, yeah. the, the narrative tension of what's going to happen to the, these kids' mother. Mm-hmm. And well, you don't know you because you don't really know what's wrong with her either, and I think that's right. important. You like them are kind of in a little bit in the dark. Like the husband always seems to know more, the father always seems to know more than what's going on than they do, but they're keeping right. it from them. And you yep. are kind of like in in this in the same vein as them, not knowing. So I think it's a very small thing they do to make you sympathize with them even more so than being just children. Exactly. Yeah. But then it's also like their optimism and their, I mean, again, it's like, there's no more, like in, if this movie was an American movie, the older daughter wouldn't want to take care of her younger right. sister. Yeah. This younger sister would be an annoyance. There would right? be some kids at school that were making fun of the older daughter because of her clothes or right. sure. where she was from, you know, they would have to, they would have to force fake drama into the narrative in order to you know like have some redemption arc for characters overall but Miyazaki um, you know he just there's no bad people there's just this situation and you know it's more about the beauty of imagination and the beauty of you know the fact that like people can't see these spirits as they get older and it lets it be open to the idea of like, well, do these spirits really exist and we just can't see them as we get older? Or is it just really a product of yeah. the children's imagination trying to make the best of a, you know, it could be a bad situation. Right. And it's, I don't know. And either one, it doesn't matter because it doesn't lose its magic because of it. Right. Like, yeah. It's, it's, it's magical regardless. Exactly. Right. So, but yeah, I, I, I really, really love this movie. Um, yeah. Miyazaki's movies on a whole are all pretty amazing. And there's about 10 of them in a row that are all um, basically like masterpieces in their own way. Some some a little better than others. But like this one, um, Mononoke, Spirited Away, uh, Castle in the Sky. Um, I would just go... Up as far as uh, Arietti and Ponyo. I think they're both fantastic. Howl's Movie Castle is fantastic. 
just these brilliant combinations of the fantastical and the mundane. Yeah. And just really like entertaining and heartwarming and I don't know, like just beautifully directed and crafted stories. Yeah, and somehow I so nice. Yes, they do. Somehow this is the first that's ever made a list, right? Miyazaki movie? Is that right? I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean it won't be the last, depending on like what list we end up doing in the future, I'm assuming. Um Yeah. But would this is a question I had for you? I was waiting until now to ask it. Would any of those other movies that you mentioned have made this list if you didn't want to put if you didn't want to over potentially overload it with Miyazaki movies? Oh, yeah, yeah, I would have put Nausicaa and um, Castle in the Sky on this yeah. list. What about Kiki's? Is I thought Kiki was 90, is it in the 80s? Yeah, oh, then yeah, Kiki too, <laughs> right. So, so the only other movie that would have been on here probably would have been Roger Rabbit, I think, at that point. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I probably would have done Nah, because I really like Nausicaa. Yeah, it may have been it may have been for Miyazaki movies and, and Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're so good. It's like right. all all four of the there's all four of those movies. Number one, like we We've talked about this a lot in the podcast, but this is a pretty big topic of conversation in terms of like women and people of color and, you know, people of the LGBTQ community, like being, having starring roles Mm -hmm. in major productions. And you look at the fact that Totoro, Nausicaa, and Kiki all have female protagonists, Mm -hmm. like as the main characters. And Castle in the Sky has a female co-protagonist. Right. So, no matter what you say about their weird pervert asses with, like, their hentai and stuff, I mean, the Japanese were pretty advanced in terms of, like, recognizing that women could be strong, independent, relatable characters and not have to ever talk about the fact that they're women. They were, and I think specifically Miyazaki using young girls is because I think that it's an acknowledgement that boys become oh god this this is probably not the conversation i want to get into boys become tainted much sooner in some ways in terms of like cynicism and like losing that magic because they're surrounded by other because they're surrounded by other boys all the time i mean they're also like you look at something just using grave of the fireflies as an example um Expected to be productive members of society much earlier, right? At least from you know that yeah. societal perspective, right? So I don't know. Anyway, I all four of those movies of his that we just mentioned are fantastic. Yeah, yeah, really good. And then you have the like Castle of Kagoyashi from the seventies, and then um, Pompoko and shit, what is that after that? I guess Mononoke is ninety five or so. 96. Right. Something like that. 97. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, just uh, amazing. Like, all that stuff is... The Studio Ghibli stuff is, by and large, like, some of the best animations ever been created. Right. Yeah. You know what we should do some year is, is a... Um, is a spirited away retrospective of the people that 
want to go. Oh, yeah, it's a good idea. That was me, you, Bledsoe, Aiden, Chuck, and Singleton. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, Singleton did go right because we borrowed uh, Barb Parker's Bar- van. Barb yeah. Bar- 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 van, right? Yeah, right. Barb um, was there too, wasn't he? Was he? I think so. That's a lot of people. We didn't all go in Barb Parker's van. Oh, okay. There's a second. There's a separate. Okay. All right. That would be yeah, that, but that would be very interesting. Because we, we met at Chuck's who, who house, could, who we could get out of it, and then we rode up to yeah, I can't remember, I can't remember how that worked. But. It was at the it was at the Ritzies. Yeah. Oh no, no, no I understand that, but I, I'm just, no, I'm I'm just saying like how we all because we ended up. I know I ended up riding in the van. Yeah, me too. Van? Yeah, so um, it's like somehow we went met at Chuck's and then we rode somewhere, and then we ended up going to this place and got the van. <laughs> like it was this weird like. No, you guys came and picked me and Chuck up. Oh, really? Yeah, at Chuck's house. Oh, okay. Huh. You know what? And actually, nope, I do remember that now. Actually, I do remember that now. Okay. Somebody, yeah. some some of them had to go get the van from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then Chuck and I were the last people that got picked up, I think. Gotcha. Okay. Maybe I won't. Oh, that movie's so good. Yeah, I know. Maybe I want Bledsoe to go pick up the van. I can't remember. Um, I I can't remember how that worked. But yeah, that would be cool one day. But yeah, I I, I love Miyazaki's movies, and like this one is fantastic. Yeah, was... it's probably my second favorite, honestly. It's 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 one of the top two, two or three. Like you should I... really watch Arietti and um, Ponyo at some point. They're both really good too. I think they're kind of underrated by um people yeah. of Miyazaki. Right. But um I I love Ponyo. Ponyo Ponyo might be right right up next to Totoro as my favorite. Yeah. It's got the same it's got the same emotional resonance to it and the mm-hmm. same feeling of like magic. Yeah. Brandy really likes this stuff. She'd actually oddly never seen this one. Um out of which is really weird. But um maybe but she I'm sure she hasn't seen Ponyo, so I'll Maybe someday one night we'll watch that. What did she think of it? Did she enjoy it? Oh yeah, she loved it. Yeah. It was it was her it was her it was her it was her favorite out of all of them. Um, um she was not as high like interesting, like her having never seen, I think. No, she already liked the secret in them. Like um and she had seen a cure but didn't remember any of it because of drugs back in the day. Um so and she had seen Roger Rabbit, but um, she was kind of like she thought Grave of the Fireflies was good, but didn't get emotional at all. Like didn't really like necessarily see, so recognize where it was a good movie, but like wasn't really like necessarily like blown away by it. Um, still like the Secret in Him, but like uh. Again, like you know, like not like necessarily like over the moon was wishy washy on Akira. Um, I think she actually fell asleep, but like towards the end of it. Um, and then, um, she liked two friends for Roger Rabbit watching it again, and Totoro was like she really loved a lot. Um, but that's the kind of thing that she likes, like, 
um, yeah. things that are like kind of like magical and sweet, but not saccharine. Like, it's right. yeah, it's, like it's, it's a good balance there. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, good. I think that was a good list to start the year. Um, and mm-hmm. then we're going to move into um, Buñuel movies next week and get really fucking artsy on everybody. Right. Um, all, all still magical realism. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in talking about that, um, for the, um, for the, for the, for the five other people in the world that are going to be interested in that list. But, um, but I, I, I was fascinated watching these movies, um, uh, despite how I felt about them overall in the end, they were all interesting watches, um, from a really unique filmmaker. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to talk about that. And um Yeah, I can't think of anything else to say. You have any final thoughts about these animated movies, Frank? No, just um really fun list to do and I yeah. like I said, I know that could easily do like another top five on top of it. Right. Okay. So um happy New Year's everyone. Thanks for listening. Um other than that, uh, please go ahead and check us out next week um, uh, as we talk about the top five movies of Luis Buñuel. Um, have a good night. Have a good week. And thank you. Have a good night.